Well, we are back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and a really a difficult passage of Scripture for one reason, and that is it's, it's such a big pericope, it's such a big passage, it's difficult to sort of splice the thought up, uh, but uh, going all the way down to verse 13 would be a bit much for us today. You know how I preach. Sometimes one verse is too much for me, let alone, you know, 11 verses or whatever. Um, but this is a, a, just an amazing book. One of the reasons why, as I've said so many times, is because it gives us a real glimpse, a behind-the-scenes look at the, uh, at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Really, his heart is what I'm getting at. He really bears his heart before the church in this letter. It's just a, an amazing autobiographical book about his travels, his mission, his struggles, and uh, his triumphs all in the gospel. So if you would, let's pray one last time for the word together, okay? Father, we ask for your blessing now on your word. Lord, we believe this to be your very word, your inerrant, inspired, ever-living, ever-active word. And Father, we're so blessed to have it. Lord, I think of the Puritans who declared that they would rather lose their children, their homes, their lands, than to lose the Word of God. Father, give us that heart to treasure your Word, to treasure it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. And Father, I pray that you would use this text of Scripture to encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we come into this passage here, which is really remarkable for several reasons. One of the reasons why, if you look back to chapter 2, you really have to do this. You go back to chapter 2, Paul leaves off in verse 12, actually, talking about his personal travel arrangements, and there he talks about Troas. Chapter 7 picks up this thought. In verse 12, he says, Now I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened to me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on into Macedonia. So now you go back to chapter 7, and he sort of resumes this thought. He went on a long digression defending his apostolic ministry before the church, and now he's going to pick up again. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia... Our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. The reason why I just cherished this passage of Scripture, because I was just encouraged to know that Paul is human, that Paul is a real person, that Paul was uh, depressed like I get depressed although I probably can't even identify with the type of depression he went through, the type of affliction and suffering and trial that the apostle went through. But really what we're getting here is Paul's uh, remedy for depression, for discouragement. Now, granted, exegetically, this is speaking of a pastor, right? This is speaking of an apostle who is discouraged because of ministry. Things are going south in the ministry. Matter of fact, I just picked up a book by Joel Beakey entitled... Uh, encouragement for pastors. In the first opening section of that book, in the introduction, he lists all the different ways that pastors can get discouraged. And I'm sitting there reading going, amen, 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 amen. But he talks about the fact that, you know, today um, pastors are leaving the ministry at astronomical rates and that one of the key things that is lacking is enough time to rest, mental rest, 
physical rest, just rest all the way around, relaxation. As a matter of fact, he lists as one of the top five reasons why pastors leave. They feel overworked. Well, I don't know that any pastor today works as hard as the Apostle Paul did. But Paul says very plainly here that he had no rest for his flesh. So I want to look at three different things. Number one, I sort of want to set the stage to understand his afflictions. And then I want to give you two remedies that I see in this text that God gives in order to console us, to encourage us, to, to cause us to bounce back and to keep going and to endure in life and in the ministry, of course. But first, to understand something of the trials of the Apostle Paul. Listen to the language that he uses here. If you sort of caught it there back in chapter 2, verse 12, he says he had no rest for his spirit. And here he says, we had no rest for our flesh. Oh, spirit, flesh, the totality of who he is. His whole life was on the fringe of exhaustion. The Apostle Paul was brought to the brink time and again. He was constantly bombarded with weariness and with trial. And just look at the suffocating language that he uses here to describe his afflictions. He says, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Matter of fact, the word side is not even in the original. It just says, literally, we were afflicted in all. <laughs> It's just this all-encompassing trial. It's just literally blinding, suffocating, all-encompassing trial. And then he describes it in this way. He says we had conflicts without and fears within. Conflicts without, literally the word there, conflicts, is the word that's used to beat somebody with blows. It's the word that's used to, to strike somebody. He felt like his trials were literally beating him up. You ever fear like that? Like your trials are just beating you up. It's one thing after another, one wave after another. When it rains, it pours, right? Well, that's how Paul felt. Paul was so overwhelmed. He was so, he was so entrapped by his trials. He had all of these conflicts without. Matter of fact, if you look over at chapter 8, to compound the problem. Not only is he bringing baggage, we could say, into Macedonia from Troas, but when he gets to Macedonia, there's problems there. Look at what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, he didn't come into a good situation in Macedonia either. The only thing good about Macedonia was the Macedonian believers themselves because they were godly because they encouraged him. They, they bore up under their trials and they maintained their Christian joy. What a telltale sign of true godliness where you can maintain your Christian joy in the midst of your suffering and your afflictions. He says, it was bombarded, conflicts without. Now, obviously, we know what this means. He was overwhelmed by the fact that he couldn't find Titus. And why is it so important to find Titus? 
because Titus had been the bearer of what's known as the severe letter to the Corinthians, this non-extent letter that didn't survive, but that was delivered to the, mass, to the Corinthians in order to rebuke them and admonish them to the point that it caused them sorrow. And so what Paul is stressing here is that he's perplexed and he's filled with anxiety that Titus has not been able to bring word back to Paul. So he enters into the realm of the unknown, and that's why I believe he says not only conflicts without, but fears within. There was a, 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 a crippling fear that seized Paul's heart. The fear of the unknown. The fear, are the Corinthians going to repent and come back to the side of the apostle? Because as so many Commentaries, including, including uh, Murray Harris, suggest coming back to the side of the apostle was to come back to the gospel. Because moving away from Paul and away from his teaching was to move away from the gospel. And we know that to be true because in chapter 10 and chapter 11 and so on and so forth, there are false teachers in Corinth. And so they'd leave themselves susceptible when they moved away from their apostolic covering. They were susceptible to false teachers. And that's why there is so much at stake here for the Apostle Paul. You know, for Paul, ministry was not a vocation. It wasn't just an occupation. It wasn't just a job that he did. It was, his, it was life and death for him. He agonized in the ministry. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, I am in labor again with you until Christ is formed in you. Paul had a duty. Paul had a commission. Paul was sent by Christ in order to plant these biblical churches, to, to see these biblical churches raised up, sanctified, purified, and Paul was never going to rest until he saw that happen. And when anything came in to conflict against that, he would be filled with great angst, be filled with great anxiety, worry, fears even. But now there's something really important about this, this whole text here, and that is this, that in terms of Paul's depression, in terms of Paul's trials, we would be remiss if we didn't point this out. And that is this, that for Paul, these trials have to do with the gospel, they have to do with ministry. It wasn't just, you know, the circumstances of everyday life. Now, don't get what I'm not saying. Obviously, this is applicable for us, but we would miss the exegetical point if we didn't see the fact that this all arose out of the ministry. This all arose out of the fact that Paul was an apostle and then he was involved with the Corinthian church. And so it leads me to these a couple of conclusions, and that is that Number one, the Apostle Paul had a spiritual perspective of his trials because it was a spiritual trial. And number two, he sought spiritual solutions to his trials. And brothers and sisters, listen, we can learn a great deal just from that. Do you see your trials as spiritual? Therefore, do you seek spiritual remedies for your trials? You should because you are a spiritual person. It doesn't matter if you're not an apostle. It doesn't matter. Well, no one's an apostle. It doesn't matter if you're not a pastor. It doesn't matter if you're not a full-time ministry. The trials that come upon you can be interpreted one of two ways, either as spiritual or non-spiritual. You're either going to have the right perspective or the wrong perspective. And Paul had the right perspective. And you know what that caused him to do? Persevere. He didn't throw in the towel like Demas 
He didn't fall in love with the world. So much easier just to go with the world, right? Just go with the flow. What happened to Demas anyway? He was in the ministry like Paul. He was laboring right alongside of Paul. What happened to Demas? He left. He went back into the world. Uh, Was there a woman waiting for Demas somewhere? Did he fall in love with money somewhere, some town that he was at, that he see an occupation? He thought, you know what, I could do what that guy was doing. I can go paint boats. I can go, you know, make clothing. I can go into that occupation or that occupation. What am I doing with Paul here? All this persecution, suffering, laboring, being gossiped about and slandered and attacked. What is it all worth? But see, for Paul, he had an enduring, eternal perspective. And I want to see, I want to show you this perspective. He's already mentioned it. If you just look back to chapter 4 and chapter 5, he mentions this very perspective for all of us. But he says in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. I tell you, perspective is everything. Live in light of eternity. It will change your life. He goes on to also not just contemplate the fact that, yes, eternity is coming, but as a minister, judgment is coming for his ministry. (laughs) Look at chapter 5, verse 9. He he, he ministers out of a fear of God. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that means either with the Lord or here on the earth, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the great before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad then he goes on to talk about laboring and beseeching and calling people because of the fear of the Lord so Paul had a thoroughly spiritual perspective and he sought spiritual remedies for his afflictions, and for his depression. Let's be honest. Depression is hard. Depression is terrible. It's debilitating. It's crippling. It's humiliating. It just gives you, it gets you out of the game. You're just not yourself. Depression is just a dark shadow that rests over you at times, is it not? A dark cloud that just won't go away. And for some, more than others, it can be a real problem. Let me just give you two very basic ways that maybe you can seek to remedy your depression or just your trials in general. Number one, God comforted Paul through the ministry of individuals. Look at verse 6. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. What's the last time a pastor told you he was depressed? Paul told the Corinthians he was depressed. He was vulnerable with them, transparent. He wasn't just trying to put on a face. He was genuine. He was authentic. He was real. He says, look, God who comforts the depressed comforted us, meaning we were depressed. (laughs) That's the point, you see. 
incredibly, we have to start with that little small phrase there, but God. What's the difference maker in your trials? It better be God. It better be God. And I point this out, you know, but God, right? But, but Paul points it out, but it's different than the English. In the English, he begins the sentence with, but God. However, in the Greek text, he puts God at the very end of the sentence. It's amazing. Literally, it reads, the one comforting those who are depressed comforted us, God. He does that sometimes to stress a major point that he's making. He's giving God the credit, God the glory, God the focus for encouraging him. And, therefore, a bit of theology proper is in order. Look at how he describes him. The one who comforts the depressed. That is the title that he has assigned to God. So glorious, because this is a nomic truth. Timeless. It can always be said of God at any time. God comforts the depressed. He has a long history of encouraging his people. What a great, glorious promise for you to cling to. Uh, I'm often telling folks and myself not to forget the promises of God, not to forget the promises of God, not to forget the promises of God. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. That's how sanctification is done. In light of the promises of God, because God is a God of comfort, I will go to him for comfort. Because God comforts the depressed, God will get me out of my depression. Don't go to the pills. Go to God. Don't go to the doctor. Go to God. I better qualify that before I get in trouble. Some people need to go to a doctor. I've met people, and the only thing I could tell them after hours of counseling and counseling and counseling, say, look, if you don't want me to tell you to go to a doctor, don't act like a person that needs a doctor. Some people, just, they won't snap out of it. They'll let it ruin their marriage. They'll let it ruin their job. They'll, they'll let it wipe out their bank account. Something's really wrong here. If you don't want a doctor, don't act like someone that needs a doctor. Be encouraged by God. That's a much better path. That's a much better path. Be encouraged by God. He is the one that comforts the depressed. Actually, this statement, I don't want you to miss this, theology proper here, is in league with many other statements that Paul has made just right here in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, about God. Remember chapter 1, verse 3? He is the God of all comfort, he says. He says in verse 9, God who raises the dead. See these maxims, these spiritual, theological maxims about God? But God who comforts the depressed also comforted us by the coming of Titus. And then in, verse, in chapter 13, he gives us one last one, the God of love and peace will be with you. That's what he is. That's who he is. And he never changes. Timeless truths that God uses to encourage us in every season, in every circumstance, no matter how challenging, we can go to God for encouragement. He is trustworthy. The psalmist, I tell you what, a place to begin to start comforting yourself is the psalms. Go to the psalms because the psalms are going to tell you to go to the word. 
And that's where true comfort is found. The Psalms is a treasure trove of ways that God encourages us. Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all of my fears. Do you have fears? I've met people that are so gripped by fears. They're so overwhelmed by fears. They need to seek the Lord. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. Oh, I tell you what, there's nothing greater than being revived by his word, which is the same thing as saying, be revived by his promises. Be revived by those things that you know to be true about God and yourself. John Calvin says, you cannot know God rightly unless you know yourself rightly. You cannot know yourself rightly unless you know God rightly. They go hand in hand. Psalm 119 verse 76 says, Oh, may, the, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. You seeing a theme over and over? Psalm 119 verse 82, My eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, When will you comfort me? Have you sought the word have you sought the lord to the point that your eyes are failing with longing for the word of god how bad do you want to get out of your depression we often hear about pastors exhorting people don't we you've probably heard it from me stay in the word get in the word use the means of grace that god has given you because it's true this is the way that god comforts the depressed ironically Paul earlier, if you look back to chapter 6, verse 2, he quotes there out of Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 2, he talks there about the acceptable, uh, the acceptable time, the day of salvation when God helps his people. And it's in that exact same context of Isaiah 49 that, Paul, or that Isaiah talks about God comforting his people. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 49, 13, shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, break forth into, sh- into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. Paul comforted himself by availing himself to the things that God uses to comfort us. He used the ministry of Titus, for example. That's the individual that encouraged him. If you go back to this verse where he says, God, he says, but God who comforts the depressed, he comforted us by the coming of Titus. It was through the ministry of Titus, through the report that Titus would give. And this is not a one-time thing for Paul. Paul often was encouraged by the ministry of others. Timothy, for example, in a parallel passage, if you want a parallel passage to this phenomenon right here, God encouraging an individual through another individual, especially in the context of the local church, you can see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, but this time it's, it's Timothy, it's Timothy. He says there in verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith, your love, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. 
Same phenomenon. Do you have brethren that can encourage you? Are you encouraged by your brothers and sisters? This is what's called one another theology, one another life. We have to be in each other's life. Or do you isolate yourself? Do you remove yourself from the body? Do you avoid encouragement from others? I know some people are shy and they struggle with that. But listen, if you are struggling spiritually, you need to go to others. You need the accountability, the encouragement of other people because God has ordained it that way. And it always results in something good. For example, this exact thing here that's being talked about in 1 Thessalonians is actually, we have another look, another perspective of this in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 shows what happens when this, what happened when Timothy came to Paul in, in, in terms of the Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 18, this is very important, Acts chapter 18 verse 5, it says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word of God solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I believe it is partially because of the ministry of, of Timothy, and now we know that Silas was involved, that they enabled and they freed Paul to pursue God, to give himself to the things of God, because they had relieved his distress. They had relieved them, and that's what happens with encouragement. When you're encouraged by a fellow brother or a fellow sister, you are now free to live again, right? So Paul says, after finding out about the church, we can now live. That's what he says. We can really, really live. So always have those brethren in your life that can encourage you. It's so vital. It's foundational, yet we neglect it so quickly. But don't let the, don't let the, 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 you know, the, how common it is, don't let that deplete the potency of it. Number two, God didn't just encourage Paul with an individual. God encouraged Paul through the church. Look at verse 7. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which, we, which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. So it wasn't just through the ministry of one person, not only by his coming Titus, but also the, the encouragement that he got from the whole church, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. When Paul says in you, he means something like from among you, being among you. There should be an encouragement just being among the people of God. That is just a great means of grace, fellowship. So just as Titus was an instrument in God's hand to encourage Paul, so too the whole church was God's means of encouraging both Paul and Titus. But not only this, but look at verse 7, because verse 7 is interesting in this one fact that it summarizes everything that's coming in verses 8 through 13. Verse 7, verse 7 is kind of like a summary, a snapshot at what's coming because he develops these ideas further, longing, mourning, zeal, all of these things, repentance as he's going to go on to talk about. But it was through the church that Paul and Titus were thoroughly, thoroughly encouraged 
Now let's get into some of these. These are, there are three things that I want to point out here that he focuses in on. Number one, longing. And when he says longing, what does he mean? Well, there's only a few other parallels where the word longing means to long to see someone in person. And I think that's what it was. It wasn't just enough to, you know, message Paul on Facebook. He wanted to see him. He wanted, they wanted to see him. He wanted to see them. There's some dynamic that happens in the presence of fellowship. Sometimes a phone call is not enough. Sometimes Skype is not enough or Twitter or whatever. I don't, I'm not any of those things, but whatever people do now to call each other friends on, you know, because you typed something. But true friendship is deeper than that. It's spending time together. Do you long for fellowship? I hope that you do because it's absolutely critical. It's the way that God encourages us. All that remained was for them, therefore, to express this kind of love for them. Remember that earlier on, Paul was telling them, open your hearts, show us affection. You're not restrained by us. You're restrained by your own doing. And so he was being brought back into their favor like an old friend or even more like an, old, like a, like an estranged father because that's what he was. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, he was their father in the Lord. And it just so revived his heart to know that this church is being won back to his side. They're coming back into his side. Not only was there a desire for fellowship, there was also a regret for sin. You see the word there, mourning? It actually produced mourning, weeping, I believe. The only other place uh, in the New Testament this word uh, udormas is used is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, where it talks about mourn, the mourning of Rachel, Rachel weeping for her children in Matthew 2, 18. There was a real sense of sorrow for sin. They were truly, genuinely sorry that they had wronged the apostle Paul, and this was just a, a great, great means of encouragement for the apostle Paul. True fellowship is being restored now, as Paul is going to go on to clarify later in chapter 10, there will be those still who are still trying to influence the church and come at the church, false teachers, either in the church or outside of the church, but trying to get at the church. So there's still issues, but by and large, the, the church has rectified the problems that they had against the apostle Paul, and we'll talk about some of those the third thing is this, there was a passion for vindication. And it might even help to look a little bit further down at the text where he actually gets into, into this. He says in verse 11, what longing, what zeal, see the same kind of terminology, what avenging of wrong, sort of coupled there together with the idea of zeal. What is he talking about? What zeal? It wasn't just that they became zealous. It was that they became zealous to do what was right, to make things right, to vindicate both Paul and themselves in the matter. And you know what? They were moved to action, weren't they? It wasn't just lip service. They actually, they actually were moved to action. They knew what was right, and they did it. How many churches today know to do what is right, but they don't do it? How many, I mean, church discipline is like a foregone conclusion for some people. You just don't do it. 
I mean, I've had pastors tell me, why would you do that? You're just going to scare people away. Hello, uh, does the Bible mean anything to you? I mean, God did command it, you know. And there's so many churches that know to do the right thing, but they don't do it. Maybe there's someone in sin, but they won't church discipline them. Maybe there's somebody who's teaching in the church, ought not to be teaching the church. They're afraid to approach them in case, you know, they don't want to cause any ripples. They don't want to cause any waves. They don't want to make us uh, uh, any noise. Some people need to be removed. Some people need to be dealt with. Some things need to be dealt with. When, when you know to do that which is right, do it. And don't hesitate. Well, the Corinthians did it. They moved into action. They disciplined the person that was causing Paul harm, chapter 2. And they, they probably even dealt with the immoral man, of course, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man that was living in an incestuous relationship. Surely they disciplined him. So this church, it's on its way to revival because it's purifying itself. It's being sanctified. It's being rectified. Problems are being dealt with. So many churches that could be in that same pathway, back to faithfulness, but they won't act, even though they know to do the right thing. Lastly, look at what it results in. It results in an ever-increasing joy for the Apostle Paul. He says there in verse 7 at the end, he says, So that I rejoiced even more, even more. It was one thing that they received the letter. It was one thing for them to agree with the letter. But it's much more that they have a heart for Paul now. They do it out of the genuineness of their heart. They're really, truly coming back to him. There's a genuine affection for Paul. There's genuine emotion. There's a genuine fellowship that's being restored. And restored fellowship means restored joy for the Apostle Paul, restored joy. Paul's depression was turned into delight. He delighted in the fact that God had removed sin from the church. He delighted in the fact that God had encouraged him through the sanctification, the purity of the church. He delighted in the fact that he could now come to them in, in sor- not in sorrow, but in joy, in true fellowship, in true unity. And Paul was resolved to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances, but now even more, even more, he would rejoice. He chose delight instead of depression. For Paul, all of this was evidence that God had consoled him. And therein lies one of the tricks of the enemy. That it, it, you may tend to think, well, it's just, it's just a person. It's just fellowship. Listen, Paul is Titus's superior, if you, if you would, spiritually. He's an apostle. Titus is his emissary that goes out and he does the things that, you know, Paul commissions him to do. Now listen, I will get encouragement wherever I can get it. Sometimes the kids in the church encourage me. I've been encouraged beyond my wildest dreams sometimes by, just by the children in this church. A little girl some time ago, a little girl, I won't tell you who, came up to me and said, you know what you were talking about the other day about bearing your cross? It's like, wow, this kid's thinking about bearing your cross at seven years old. She goes, I want to do that. I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to bear my cross. I was encouraged by that. 
man, that was, I needed that. I think that was a day I preached a bad sermon. I really needed that encouragement. But you see, encouragement is all about perspective, isn't it? If you just think, oh, well, what's, what's going to church going to do? What's listening to a brother? What's getting accountable with a brother really going to do? But if you don't believe that it's God working through that, that that is the means that God has ordained for your encouragement, then you're right, you won't take it serious. But when you're listening to your brothers and sisters, when you're, when you're seeking the encouragement in that word, in that hour, from that person, it changes everything. Perspective changes everything. And I pray for all of us here, because I know that seasons come and seasons go, and what, one of the things that's so sobering about church is coming here knowing that people are going through such terrible times. John Piper recently said, you know, he doesn't understand how pastors can goof off in the ministry, goof off in the pulpit. Come into the pulpit and just, it's a joke. It's just about joking and laughing and telling stories. And uh, Piper was good to remind us that there are people with cancer in the church and you're joking. There are people that just lost a loved one in the church. You're joking? There's people whose marriages are falling apart and you're cracking jokes from the pulpit? No. The church ought to be a haven of encouragement. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage us more and more as we look at the example of the Apostle Paul Father, as we see how you encouraged him, I pray that we would seek the same remedies, that we wouldn't harden our hearts against our brothers and sisters, that we wouldn't think ourselves to be above fellowship and our desperate need for it, that we would never think that we've arrived, that we've gotten to a, a place, that we've gotten to a point where we no longer need the encouragement of the saints. Father, I pray that you keep us from pride. Keep us from thinking that we are an island to ourselves. We know what your word says. A man who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel. Help us not to isolate ourselves, Lord, but to avail ourselves. And Lord, like the Corinthians, may we be a church that when we see something that needs to be corrected, that we do it that we comply, that we conform, that we fall in line with the apostolic tradition. Oh, Father, we pray that you work all these things out for your own marvelous glory. In Jesus' name, amen.